Okay, so let me give you a few thoughts around uh, the topic for this month. So it's on sila. So sila is one of these three pillars that help support our practice. You know, the pillar of of generosity, of dana, the pillar of wisdom, and also of sila, of ethics. And when we hear the word ethics, sometimes that creates a certain reaction in us because many of us have had a history of ethics being kind of imposed from this external authority. And there's associations of being good or bad, um, sinning, all these kind of things gets very heavy. And it's often something that causes us to discount or to deny our own inner uh, drives or, or actions. You know, so those come up, we feel like we're not supposed to do it, and we just have to kind of push those away or, or avoid those. So often it creates a certain level of internal pressure, and many of us don't feel like we're very, you know, we have a sense of shame around our past actions, even if this past action was just a few minutes ago. There's a sense of heaviness that we often carry. As we mentioned last week, I remember Joseph Goldstein sharing that he had once been asked by a teacher to go reflect on his ethical conduct, right? To a way to kind of, the teacher's intention was to brighten his mind, to kind of reflect on all the good he's doing in the world. But of course, Joseph, like many of us, just reflected on all the things he's done not so skillfully. All the times he's lied or stolen something, and it became, you know, not the opposite effect that the teacher wanted. So I think it's important for us to, to bring that awareness into what kind of baggage or what kind of um, attitude are we bringing to this topic. Now, in case you're not familiar with these precepts, is another way of talking about the ethics. We tend to have these five precepts that we center our practice around. And there's different translations and versions. And as a community, we'll be taking these on the 8th. So this is usually the, the first meeting of the new year unless it falls on the new year, that we'll meet and we'll chant these together and we'll share some thoughts from the teacher perspective around the refuges and the precepts. We'll take some protection cords, have a little ceremony. But the five precepts, I'll begin with, I undertake the training to refrain from destroying creatures, from living creatures. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. I undertake the tra- training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept or the training to refrain from false speech. And finally, I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs which lead to carelessness. So these are the five precepts. Now, as you, as you heard those, if you haven't heard those, if you, or if you have, perhaps you, you followed along and maybe you just kind of zoned out because you've heard them so many times. Or perhaps you heard some of them and you're like, ooh, I don't know about that one, or that one kind of elicits some kind of shame or guilt in myself. Like, hope, you know, hope he doesn't ask me too much about number three or whatever it might be. You know, and just that, that kind of quality. But one thing I want to highlight about these is the undertaking the training. Undertake the training. And that's, as I was reflecting on what to share with you tonight, that kind of stood, kind of came to the forefront. Because when we think about training, that's different than like this hard or fast rule that we just have to always follow. You know, because we can always say, okay, do you do it or you don't do it? 
But the training means there's some kind of transformation that happens in us as we practice with it, as we bring our, our interest, our investigation, our energy to it. Something starts to transform in us. We, become, we get more skilled at it. We get more experienced at it. We get to know this whole landscape of our minds and our bodies, right? including the shame around our past actions. Because the shame, sometimes that gets to this place we get kind of paralyzed or we just get so wrought with guilt. There's a famous character, one of our, the most colorful characters in the, the suttas, named Agulimala. Right? So Agulimala was uh, just a person who was born kind of under a bad sign that uh, the way that the astrologers or the, whoever the seers said, okay, this, this kid's going to go a bad way. And so his parents really didn't want him to do that. They wanted him to really be a healthy, happy individual. So they did everything they could to, to do that. You know, gave, gave him good schooling and really loved him and cared for him. And it was all going really well. But he, was, he really excelled at school. And people got a little jealous around him. And at the end of his schooling, there's this kind of point where you ask the teacher to give you your blessing. Okay, you've, you've learned it. And other students talked behind his back and told the teacher that he's, he's, he's you know, second-guessing you and talking ill of you and got the teacher really riled up. So the teacher said, I'm only going to give you your blessing if you give me a gift. And that gift, for some reason, was 1,000 fingers from people you've killed. Okay, this is really intense, right? But that was enough to, because he wanted to really honor this teacher, and he didn't realize all this dynamics, but that was enough to kind of activate that history or that, that tendency in him. So he went about killing people, and he was really good at it. And he got to 999. And the last one, he, he chose the Buddha to be the last one. Right? So he's chasing the Buddha. But there's this beautiful part of the sutta where the Buddha is just walking in a normal pace without any kind of hurry. And Agulimala, who's really a superhuman strength, is just sprinting and can't get any closer. And he yells at him, the Buddha, to stop. And the Buddha turns and says, I have stopped. You're the one who hasn't stopped. And that really cut through not, not the actions, external actions, but stopping the inner turmoil of breaking these precepts, coming into that sense of, of, of truth, of stillness, of open-heartedness. And that clarity caused the Agulimala to just drop this whole unethical behavior, to drop number one of, of killing, destroying creatures. And actually became a follower of the Buddha and became enlightened actually fairly quickly because he was so sincere. You know, he wasn't off, you know, it wasn't like he had a free pass. People still hated him, were afraid of him because he killed so many people. They would throw stones at him. And the Buddha said, you just have to bear that. That's just the consequences of your actions. And it's a very powerful story around if we feel that sense of guilt from our past actions that most of us hopefully haven't killed 999 people, right? No matter how bad we've done, we can still have that clarity. We can stop that internal turmoil, that external hatred, that unkindness, that's, um, that sense of lack, 
So taking these as, as a training, it's a really different way of approaching it than some big authorities telling you, do not do this. It's like you're understanding this is something that can actually transform my mind, my heart, by practicing with it. And all these things come up in areas of, of shame, you know, sense of guilt. Okay, can I have quality of self-compassion, forgiveness for that? Can I make amends as I need to? Can I start to learn from those mixed motivations that often cause us to cause harm? You know, so often I think we, we know that we're going to cause harm by some action, but there's also something that's really driving us to do it, to steal, to say something um, untrue, you know, to, to lash out in an unkind, harsh way. And so starting to notice those mixed motivations, because we wouldn't really do something unless it benefit us in some way. You know, if I was a carpenter and I hit my finger with a hammer, I'm not going to keep doing that unless I was a really bad carpenter. I would learn pretty quickly how to avoid that, right? Because the pain, there's really no positive side to that. But there's often these unseen things that benefit us. Often it's around the territory of protecting ourselves, of a sense of hurt, of a sense of inadequacy. And if we start to learn to, to use this as a training, we get to see those unseen aspects and actually touch those aspects with a quality of compassion, with a quality of kindness. It's like, oh, there's a tenderness here. right? And my actions of, of causing harm or protecting myself or whatever it is doesn't really address that deeper hurt, that deeper pain. So it's not about excusing our actions or explaining them. It's really much more about understanding them, deeply understanding them. And through that understanding, then we start to transform. I think that's one of the most powerful things about our practice is that it's not a kind of a rule-based practice. The precepts, we can sometimes think of it that way, but it's really not a rule-based practice. It's really much more of we learn to see things clearly. We learn to perceive what's really here. Not all our distortions, our preconceptions, but actually what's present. That direct seeing and that moment of contact, that's what transforms us. Right? So things actually start to let go of us. Not so much that we're kind of willing ourselves, pushing ourselves through it. It's like the clarity is what helps us to see and to transform. So these five precepts, we can see them when we almost as, especially as a training, like when for, you know, when we go bowling, you guys ever go bowling, and you have when you, when you're first learning, they often put these bumpers up, right, so your ball doesn't go into the gutter and, you know, be buttered. The gutters or the but what are they call buff? What are they call butters? No. Bumpers, thank you. Bumpers, we push up against them, and then we go back in, you know, back on toward the pins. And so the precepts kind of kind of act like that. Especially at first, we kind of run to one side and we bounce off that. Okay, I just said a lie. Okay, let me come back to the center. I go to the other side, I want to steal something. And it could be something really small. It could be like, you know, no one's looking at the 
um, sample table. I'm going to just take that extra little holiday cookie or something without, you know, think there's no consequence. And there may not be. But still, we, we know for ourselves. I think that's one of the pieces, too. I remember hearing Ruth Dennison once said that we we start being able we stop being able to get away with anything. Okay, not so much externally, but just internally we just know when we're not acting in a in a kind way, in a skillful way. It becomes more and more obvious to ourselves. And that becomes less and less tolerable. Not because someone's saying, you know, you're a bad person for doing that. We just don't feel aligned. We don't feel connected to ourselves. We start to value that quality of integrity, that quality of interconnection, much more than all these other motivations. So when we find ourselves kind of bumping up against that, sometimes it might, we might just slam into that. Sometimes we might be just getting near it. We can do a little course correction. We can start to use those as a way to kind of cue ourselves Oh, to pay more attention. I think often we wonder, how do we bring our, our really silent, still practice we learn in a meditation class or on retreat, how does that come into our daily lives? Right? This is one of the, the really helpful ways to do it, is that you, know, you learn to know when to be mindful, when to play, be present. Because if you're, those of you who have gone on a retreat, you actually have the luxury just to be mindful the whole time, right? It's hard to do that. But once you kind of, something, a switch happens, it's, you start to be more sustained in the mindfulness. It just becomes more continuous, right? Everything's there to support that. You come back into your life and you got kids pulling on your elbow. You've got traffic jams. You've got work deadlines. You've got relationship troubles. You can't just say, okay, slow down. I want to just meditate here. I want to disconnect. We have to still be present, right? We start to feel ourselves bump up against those those precepts. That's a cue, like a meditation bell, calling us back to be present, to pay attention. Not from a place of self-judgment, of self-criticism, but instead of those qualities, a quality of, of compassion. Let me understand what's actually here. Let me see what's what's going on. Let me open to this. And through that opening, we start to transform. These precepts, we often think of them as external, which is really important, our actions externally. Equally internally, too, how we actually relate to ourselves. Can we relate to ourselves in a place, in a way that doesn't harm ourselves, that doesn't kill aspects of ourselves? Denying this part. I hate that part of it, of myself. Do we ever, can we have a quality of, of being very generous to our own hearts, our own bodies, caring for ourselves, our future selves? Can we care for our sexual energy in a way that enhances our lives instead of degrading our lives, just as we do with others? Can we be honest and truthful for ourselves? You know, can we really say that that inner critic that's so harsh and so judgmental, how truthful is those those words? Can we bring that quality of, of clarity through what we ingest? 
This way, these precepts start, we can start to see how they can really are training. That over time, we become more and more attuned to them. They start to become a stance of how we actually relate to life. We start to sense that in ourselves. We start to sense it in other people. When people are following the precepts, there's a way that we can relax. If someone isn't, and it's not just obviously a Buddhist thing. There's many, many other traditions and non-traditions that this is just a good way of being around other people. We can start to sense when people aren't so um, ethical or have a sense of integrity. And we just know when to be a little bit more careful of our boundaries, of our our space around us. And finally, these, these precepts, usually they're, they're kind of voiced the way I, I, I shared, like refrain from killing, from taking that which is not given. And there's also some very, they all have a positive way of expressing them, being expressed, I should say. And I offered a uh, version from Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, from Plum Village, that has some very beautiful ways of, of kind of both addressing the kind of the, the negative aspect to not do it, but also the positive aspect, the positive aspect of how these can be expressed. So just to briefly touch on those. So reverence for life, the first one. Committed to cultivating the insight of interbeing and compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. And the, the one around stealing is the true happiness. Awareness of the suffering caused by exploitation. I'm committed to practicing generosity in my thinking, speaking, and acting. Around the sexual misconduct, Committed to cultivating responsibility. He actually says true love here. Committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. Around the precept to refrain from falsehood, loving speech, and deep listening. Committed to cultivating loving speech and compassionate listening in order to relieve suffering and to promote reconciliation and peace in myself and among other people. And finally, the refraining from intoxicants, awareness of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I'm committed to cultivating good health, both physically and mentally. So if you haven't had a chance to check out those, um, you can just type in precepts, Thich Nhat Hanh, or look at the, the homework back there. And that can be a nice nice thing to kind of explore, too. Because sometimes looking at it from a different angle, sometimes your hearts kind of come more alive. Okay, let me focus on generosity instead of not stealing. But think about this quality of it being a training. How can I practice generosity? How can I start to train my heart to be generous? How can I train my heart to have a quality of, of kind speech, of truthful speech? All right, let's just quietly for a couple of moments letting those words settle. Okay, a couple minutes we'll break into smaller groups. 
and just have a chance to, in a, in a more intimate way, explore this topic of, of ethics, of sila, particularly around these five precepts. Now, this exploration, I think it's, it's equally important to talk about times that you've really followed the precepts and what that's been like to actually, okay, I've made a choice to to not steal, to say, say something that's truthful, to not to kill something, to, to notice that too. That's really an essential aspect to kind of, because that starts to really um, self-motivate. We start to self-perpetuate when we notice and reflect how we uh, also follow these precepts. So this, this, some of the guidelines or some of the questions to consider are around which of the five precepts you might have a harder time following, which ones might be easier. Start to notice some of the mixed uh, motivations around those. And also start to notice what's the inner and outer effects of following those precepts. What's the effects of the people around you? What's the inner transformation? And you know, maybe what it was like to look at those positive expressions of the, of the five precepts. So we'll have groups of uh, four to five people. That seems to be a good number, so everyone has a chance to speak, and but doesn't drag down if there's too few people. Too many gets a little bit, uh, not enough time. So for about 20 minutes, uh, we'll explore this this topic. And in these groups, it's, it's really about you both listening deeply to each other and also just sharing from your heart, from your own experience. It's not about trying to offer uh, advice or trying to sh- change anyone, but just, just listening. Give each person a chance to speak. And also holding everything that's said there confidentially so people can you know, share as they will. And after the group disbands, you just you kind of keep that in your own. That kind of, that's another quality of ethics is honoring confidentiality. All right, any questions about that process? Everyone clear, clear enough? All right, so there in the room, go ahead and find uh, four other people. So you're in a group of five or four people, and those online will get you into some breakout rooms shortly. Okay, welcome back. I think everyone's back from online. Yeah. All right, so we have a um, chance to ask any questions or any sharing you would like to do. So those in the room, you could just raise your hand if you don't mind grabbing the mic so they can hear you online. And those in person or online, you can just raise your virtual hand. Iris, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I didn't have permission to unmute, but uh, I just got permission. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, I'm, I'm off video tonight. Sorry. Um, so, um, yeah, our group was quite lovely. And, um, you know, the, the two of us who went first kind of went through the litany of all of our, um, transgressions of the, uh, of the precepts. And, uh, then the third person who spoke, um, came in with a very wise voice to remind us of, you know, of what you taught us, uh, Tim, about um, that um, what we're learning is to, to to see what we're doing so that, you know, when we break a precept, you know, to, to, to open to that, to see what it feels like, to understand what's going on in our mind and heart, 
to see how we're causing ourselves or others suffering. Um, and so it just felt so much um, deeper and more connecting with the third person's viewpoint brought into the, the group to not, you know, like not, oh, I'm a bad person because I, I killed some ants, but, oh, I don't like killing ants and they are sentient beings and it hurts. And, you know, can I find a way to not harm? Great. Thank you, Iris. I'm glad that the third person was able to kind of bring that around because it's easy to kind of go into that sense of, uh, of shame and guilt. And I'm just, it kind of reinforces that identity of the person as a, as we being a bad person, but to really bring that back to the training and like, Oh, let me, let me care for, how can I work with this? How can I explore the edges on that? All right, come on up, Adam. So one of the things that I was practicing with and have been enjoying um, working with is that uh, somebody in our group mentioned like alignment and kind of finding a balance and finding your your relationship with mm-hmm. um, these topics of ethics and how um, so for to use the example of false speech and working I've been working on you know gossip and just like knowing that feeling of when I'm going to tell a story and when maybe I wouldn't tell it if the person were in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, working with that and how that's become something that's become easy or easier. Um, but then that's kind of exposed new growing edges, for example, of, well, maybe I hear something and my truth is, you know, saying like, ah, actually, that made me uncomfortable or like, I think that person had great good intentions or, you know, when if I stay silent, that's bumping up against that same discomfort. That, yeah that false speech, because I've been working with it, is is pointing to, and how that's, um, again, that, with that concept of balance and alignment, mm-hmm. I feel like is a cool way to, to explore the more subtle aspects of these things. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Yeah, that uh, concept or that that's image of balance and alignment I think is very helpful because that this what it feels like internally when we we do get aligned we also feel when we're not being so um, ethical there's that sense of being out of alignment or out of balance and I think that internal I tend to be very kinesthetic in my own practice so I tend to rely on what the the body is telling me and whether that's lined up or not and whether it's almost like a dissonance like you have two notes which are quite harmonized and they they kind of grate on each other. You start to sense that, and and the, and the piece of those those new edges, kind of that example of the gossip. And okay, I'm going to refrain from gossiping myself. But then the next stage, what does that what does that uncover? And that's that process of of the training of the of the, the growth, and also you can see how these are really a, a leading edge that kind of bring us into more and more nuances. It also has the effect. Uh, when we start to become ethical in one area, it starts to kind of cool down the noise or the chatter or the static so we can s- sense more clearly. Like if we're kind of, you know, just in the middle of the precepts, we can't, our perception's kind of clouded by all the, the noise that kicks up. 
and we start to choose to be ethical, things start to quiet down and we see, oh, there's a more subtle aspect or here's a deeper alignment. And I was, I was reading some fiction book this week. I think they said something like one of the, the most effective ways to lie is to just not speak the truth. You know, and so that goes into the next level. It's like, okay, can I confront what's not true? Can I actually have that sense of stepping into the world in that way? You know, and that's that's a, a deeper way of being ethical, right? It's, it's not such a passive way. It's really an active way into social justice, into, you know, how do, how do I use, you know, my privilege or my authority or whatever I have to actually help people who can't speak for themselves. You know, if they're not there or they're a, a more um, marginalized group, how can I bring that forth? And it takes courage, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right, thank you, Adam. Yeah. you mind grabbing the mic there? Hi, I'm Sarah. Um, I don't think my thought is fully fleshed out, but I just, while we were talking, had kind of this connection to different kinds of groups that I've been in, that it all, all of them have some some kind of similarity in their practice, right? Where, like, I'm part of the Quaker group, and the Quaker group is around, like, kind of creating a life of simplicity, because mm-hmm. when we create, like, you know, too many belongings or too many things can kind of cloud our ability to really be present for ourselves and present with other people. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, like, the AA community, where they talk about, like, when you're following the 12 steps, like, your life just gets a lot less complicated. Mm-hmm. And I find that, too, with Sila. Like, your life just gets less complicated and less chaotic, and I think that clears something, and I think it's actually pretty hopeful, whereas I used to really, like, hate precept talks, like, you know, been in different Buddhist groups the last 10 years, and I used to hate them, because it, like, reminded me of, like, the evangelical background that I came from that was very problematic. Um, and I just love this idea that's not actually... A rule, it's like actually a really hopeful thing. It's something that kind of opens you up to feel connected and that like when I'm breaking the precepts, it's not that I'm bad, but maybe I'm losing my connection to other people. Like if mm-hmm. I'm stealing from somebody, it's like, you know, part of the delusion that there is even someone to steal from, you know, kind That's of my right. Zen background of like we're all like we really are kind of this web, this interconnected web, and like all of these things are harming ourselves and feeding into that delusion. And then when I can, and obviously, I mean, I break the precepts all the time, but it is that, I love that bumper image too of like, poof, okay, here I go again. And in our group, we talked about even like having some humor around it, like, oh, mm-hmm. there I am, like up That's to my right. old antics and like catching that. Um, and I remember like talking to Carrie about that a while ago. Just I get so caught in my head of like, did I do this thing or not, not that thing or whatever. And she, I just love that she always reminds me in the group that like, these teachings are meant to set us free, and if they're mm-hmm. not setting us free, then maybe we need to take like a little bit of a step back, and that's been really helpful too in um, precept talk. I'm kind of rambling, but appreciate it. No, that's great. <laughs> it's Sarah. All the thoughts that came up, yeah. Sarah, yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's a lot of great um, concrete ways to work with it from that sense of simplicity, like you know, from the Quakers or from 12-step, okay, you simplify your life. And the opposite, of course, when you start to be, you know, breaking these precepts, our life gets more and more complex. And that, that's a lovely reminder about the interconnection. Like, am I connected? Am I, you know, seeing that sense of separation and duality? That's, those, from a duality perspective, breaking the precepts makes sense. From a sense of interconnection, they don't make sense. So it's like, oh, I've just forgotten that. And that's so much helpful than going into that sense of, of shame. And, and then, yeah, is practice really 
setting us free, you know. And that's because any any teachings we can approach it in a way that can tie us into knots sometimes, because we sometimes look at it from our our delusion and our ignorance and our conditioning. But to step back is as it sounds like Carrie suggested that step back, go into that quality of okay, maybe I'm approaching this in a way that, you know, you see a different reframing. Great, thank you. All right, what else is in the room? We have a few more minutes. Yes, do you mind coming up? Very brief. Um, yeah, a lovely group. Um, it's, it's always nice to have these breakout sessions and just to get to know other people in the Sangha and just what they what they have to say and um, you learn from them as well. Um, one of the things that we were talking about was that um, I think it's really easy to think of these things as like how you're impacting the other people around you. Mm. And um, although that is obviously really important, I think um, one of the topics that we were talking about was um, that it doesn't always matter how it necessarily, uh, when you feel like you're breaking these precepts, it doesn't always necessarily mean, well, how does it impact that person? Um, the word alignment came up in our group as well about like, this didn't, um, like, like whether it's with um, uh, speech or um, excessive alcohol or sexual behavior, um, if it doesn't feel good to you, if it doesn't feel aligned with who you are or, like, how you want to present yourself, that even if it didn't necessarily, like, maybe the other person didn't even notice, mm-hmm. if it doesn't feel right to you, that's still something to kind of take note of and, right. and observe. Yeah. So. Yeah, good. Yes, yeah, so you have that inner authority. You notice yeah. when it feels feels off to yourself, yeah, you can really you can open to that. You can pay yeah. attention to that. You know, of course, we also have to pay attention to what other people say it's off, too. Yeah. You know, so it's okay. <laughs> so we both have that sense of, but yeah, I think that's, that's a really lovely way to do it. Because often we make these, ideally our practice, we stop working in kind of these big dramatic ways. It's much more kind of quiet and subtle, like we're, you know, we don't have to like cause a bunch of damage and then wake up to that. We can start to notice when we are maybe just slightly moving that direction. We have the thought or the intention to move that direction. And that's that's where that inner authority or the inner alignment comes in. You can think, oh, I have this in thought to do something, but if I do that, I don't. It doesn't feel very aligned. I don't. I feel like it's off in myself. Then that's you pay attention and make a different choice. Yeah. And and mindfulness often gives us that capacity to to observe, to slow down. And the more we do it, there's also the tendency that we have these um, you know habits or patterns or conditioning that have a lot of momentum. You know. You know, talking about addiction and recovery, you know, it takes a lot of energy and commitment to really step out of that that train because it's really going that one way, and you have a lot of support around that. And but the more we do it, then we start to lose that. It starts to lose that momentum, so it doesn't have as much power over us. Yeah. So it starts to be this really positive feedback loop. Well, and I think that like sometimes I've heard that sometimes when I'm feeling like I'm not happy with my behavior, it has like some of that shame or negative self-talk associated with it. Even if it's, again, not um, the other person is not necessarily thinking anything's wrong or you're surrounding with um, yourself with people who are saying, well, no, that's 
that's fine, that's normal mm-hmm. behavior, but still if it feels like it's just not working for you, you really want to hold yourself to whether a higher standard or, you know, that's just something to listen to. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Peer pressure, if our peers are kind of the standard or of ethics is a certain way, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, it's okay to do that. Yeah, but that, that inner yeah, inner trust or that really listening to that so you feel that, okay, that, even though, and that's one of the, some of the times the hardest things to do is when the people around us are encouraging us or, you know, do it this way. And you're like, you know, like the gossiping or addiction. There's all of these things that it makes it hard to kind of shift out of those, but to have that inner, inner authority. And then you start to find that people around you start to change too. That the, you know, the people, you get people who, okay, I, I, they resonate more with your own alignment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think the build up from the last person is I have a couple, actually quite a few friends, and I used to be, do this as well, is uh, not pay the bag tax at the grocery store. <laughs> and it's like five cents, and all my friends are like, well, like essentially, it's it's a victimless crime. I, I on top of that, I don't even like these corporations, but um, I think it's more and it, to be to be blunt though, it it is stealing. Mm. Um, and I think it's more maybe what's the like who do you want to be? Mm. Yeah, and about like integrity. Yes. So I I just wanted to build up on that. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That, that, who do you, who do you want to be or what do you feel that, that sense of, um, you don't have to like justify your behavior. You don't have to kind of look behind you, yourself. You can just, cause you know, you, you probably would be, you want to probably share that with everybody, right? A bunch of grocery store or people you may not share that with. There's also the piece, um, like, you know, Sarah's mentioning that sense of, of simplicity, that sense of, of things being more, more still, more quiet. Often when we're trying to justify ourselves, we're trying to explain something. Okay, this is how I think it should be. You know, this is the reason. It's a victimless crime. It's they make enough money already. You know, that's, those are all kind of, um, it's internal noise. You know, it kind of churns us up. And we can be really good at justifying it. It can be very convincing, especially for our people around us who are also convincing. But when we have that sense of alignment and integrity, we don't really have to say much about it. It just like, it feels like this is the right thing, way to do. This is, I can feel that it's aligned. It may not be what I would choose or want to do, but it's aligned. And then, that, yeah, you'd have this, this kind of being more upright in yourself. And that's, that's really precious. All right. Anyone else? Yes. Um, Similar to what you have shared, um, because I grew up, I can be such a conformist. Yeah. um, All these fucking rules that I have to follow. So then this part of me can get triggered. It's like, oh, there's more things you're telling me to do. And 
have this resistance and this rebellion energy. Um, like, how do I claim my agency into? Well, actually, I I do want to do these things, but now you're telling me to do this. I'm not fucking doing that. Yeah. Or or just yeah. How do you work with that, or how do you? Yeah, just like how do you work with that? Well, um, in our group, uh, our group members had some brilliant ideas, like because we can use this as another weapon to feel bad about our, ourselves. Yeah. Like, oh, buy more things that I'm not good at. And right. <laughs> <laughs> buy more things that I need to feel bad about myself. Or, um, so in our group discussions, the members had this brilliant ideas about maybe we need to add on the sixth one, which is have self-compassion mm. um, to practice self-compassion yeah. towards. Um, but yeah, I'd like to hear what you. Well, you also might play with um, all the precepts applied to yourself equally. Like I won't harm myself. Mm. I won't lie to myself. I'll be generous to myself. I won't steal from myself. And we think about it from that perspective, when I when I'm you know that that kind of pushing against authority, you know that rebellious. Sometimes I mean that's that's the way it's the dynamics set up, right? Shalt not, or you're a bad person. You know, of course we're going to rebel against that as we're trying to to find our way through it. So feeling that sense of, of of compassion for that. You know, for yourself, it's like this is how can I care for myself first? How can I really have compassion for myself? What are the ways I cause harm to myself? What are ways that I maybe steal from myself? You know, anyone in the room ever don't give yourself enough sleep? Don't eat well? You know, you make choices that cause harm that we pay for the next day. You know, we could say that's kind of stealing from ourselves. You know, that self-talk. I'm such a bad person. I mean, really, if you had a jury of your peers, would they all say you're a bad person? Probably not. You know, they would say, okay, you, we're much more hard on ourselves than other people. So that sense of, okay, that maybe that's not so true. So, you know, play with it from that perspective. Okay, that owns the, the precepts apply to myself. Work with it that way. And so that way it becomes this internal thing. Because you start to notice, oh, I, I was actually kind to myself. And then there's also the... the Another big issue or big pattern you talked about is how we can use the, the precepts or meditation itself as a way to find new ways to judge ourselves. Right? Here's a new new thing I didn't realize I was doing. I thought I was okay just to be lost in daydream, but now I'm supposed to be mindful and I'm supposed to be ethical in all these pieces. Is to kind of look at that whole um, pattern itself just as another mind state that we've kind of bought into. That we think it's true, but it's not. And our, our job is to kind of work with it, open to it, investigate it until we see that the truth of it, it's not, it's not true. You know, it's not actually what we are. And those are really challenging because those kind of patterns almost, we load them up really quickly and they change how we actually perceive and interpret everything, right? We see something, we think we're being criticized. You know, we think we're failing. We're not. We have, we have to be a perfectionist. Whatever it is, this like gets really loaded in. From a dharmic perspective, we've really kind of tightened down on that sense of self. We've kind of hardwired all the mechanisms that reinforce that sense of self. 
And that's actually really good Dharma work, is to actually disengage that, to start to dissolve that. And sometimes it's like going opposite. Like if, if you feel rebellious, you know, practice, practice saying something untrue and pay attention to that. One thing that came up for me when you were saying to practice these generosity, these things towards ourselves, uh, one thing came up for me is this pattern that I, um, the condition, the conditioned mind is that I, as the Chinese daughter, I need to sacrifice my own needs, Mm -hmm. my own wants, and my own needs do not matter. Mm -hmm. I need to sacrifice these, my own wants and needs, and to... um, meets their needs. So in a way, I am harming That's right, the yeah. being over here. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so it's, from a dharmic perspective, is you know, healing that is just holding yourself equal. Yeah. That your needs, your well-being is equal to everyone else's, right. including yeah. your parents. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's that's a lot of good 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 room to to practice and investigate. Thanks for sharing that. All right, we've come to our nine o'clock closing time. So I just want to thank you all for your engagement. And this can be a challenging, tricky topic, and there's lots of things we can kind of struggle with. But also, it can be a really deep way uh, to benefit ourselves and everyone else. You know, in a very profound way. It's not just Doing good in the world, being kind is great benefit, but it really starts to liberate ourselves, a pathway to liberation, pathway to opening. So I want to wish you all um, happy holidays, whatever those expression of holidays are for you, and a wonderful new year, and I'll be seeing you back. I'll be back here with Twerry and Carrie on uh, Monday the 8th. See you next year.